Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. This week, we celebrate the Feast of St. Patrick, St. Patrick's Day. But too often, we reduce this day to a round of green beer and shamrock-themed t-shirts. Let's go a little deeper. Our guest today is author Julianne Stans. Julianne is a nationally known speaker, retreat leader, storyteller, and the director of new evangelization for the Diocese of Green Bay and a consultant to the USCCB Committee on Catechesis and Evangelization. In her new book, Braving the Thin Places, Celtic Wisdom to Create a Space for Grace, she draws on her own roots to weave together a spirituality that can help us all navigate these challenging times. And she throws in a few great stories about St. Patrick, for good measure. If you want to check out her book, visit the link in the show notes below. Now, here's my conversation with Julianne. Julian Stance, welcome to AMDG. That's good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I know. I'm so glad to, to talk to you, and I'm so glad to talk about your book, Braving the Thin Places, Celtic Wisdom to Create a Space for Grace. And it's such a timely book um, as we prepare, uh, well, for St. Patrick's Day, but also in this moment in our in our history when creating a space for, you know, for grace and, and just, you know, mindfulness and, and sacredness is, is, is so hard and challenging and so important. Absolutely. I think that there's uh, definitely an opportunity for us as um, a people to really look at how we're spending our time, how we're uh, creating these opportunities to, to be aware of God in these moments. And so I wanted to kind of showcase that a little bit um, through my heritage with this new book. So, so thank you. Yeah. So let's get right into the into the title and into the, to the main thesis of your book. I, I love the idea of a of a thin place. So maybe you can talk a little bit about um, what is it? And, and more importantly, why did you feel it was so important to write about it now? It's a great question. I spent uh, spent my years growing up in Ireland. I was educated there, came over from um, Ireland to the U.S. to minister several years ago and have been kind of watching this ebb and flow of life in, in this country now for, for 20 years. And one of the things that struck me recently in light of the pandemic has been how difficult it is to have conversation around sensitive topics. So, you know, if we were home in Ireland, I would say this is kind of a bogged down time. It's a thick time where um, we're getting kind of stuck in the mud. And whether it's politics or conversations about healthcare or education or faith or religion or all of those things, what I consistently hear over and over from people is how hard it is to have a conversation at the table, even with family members, because there's such division. And this brought me back to this lovely idea from my background um, around the idea of a thin place. And thin places were always associated with specific sacred historical sites like Newgrange or Glendalough, um, places like Iona in Scotland. But I, I believe that we can tap into those thin places, which are spaces where God meets us in a very powerful way. And so as I was looking at this time, you know, with the pandemic, I do believe that God is moving in the midst of this and he's communicating with us all the time if we're attuned to his presence. And so I believe that this is a thin time, what we call a threshold time in Ireland, where we're moving from one way of life to another. We're betwixt and between, as the Irish say. <laughs> um, we know life has changed, but we're not really sure how. And so it led me back to this concept of this thin place. 
Say more about the idea of a threshold, because throughout the book, you use a number of, of images. I think one of the images that most stuck with me was maybe you can describe this better than I can, but like a half door, you said, yeah. or a door where, where uh, you know, like part of it's open, part of it's closed. So that there's always that kind of welcoming. I just that image was so powerful in my mind. So can you can, so maybe you can do a better job explaining it than I just did. But also tell me about a threshold. And, and is there anything comparable in our, uh, you know, in the American culture or, or, or maybe something that people might might be able to grasp more readily. Oh, absolutely. So I use this image of the half door, which is this, the old rural doors of Ireland. They It was like a regular door, but it was split in half. And so you could be in your kitchen and you could open out your door. And actually, they were originally developed to stop farm animals coming into your house. But in rural towns in Ireland, you'd see people would be in their house. So they're half in, half out. But they'd be looking out at the world and they could, you know, commune with their neighbors, chat have conversation. And I love this image of a threshold for us as, as an image to God. We can throw wide open the door of our heart to him. We can keep back a little bit or we can keep it totally closed. Um, to to, to talk about a you know a very spiritual reference here, I think thresholds are liminal places. We talk about this idea of liminality um, as Catholics a lot, which like the sacraments are liminal space. They take you from, you know, confession from a place of sin and you know, dwelling in your weaknesses and failings to the new life in Christ. Marriage symbolizes the two becoming one. But I also think that we have threshold experiences around other events in our lives. For example, um, rites of passage when your child gets a driver's license hmm. and how that can be a thin place if it's blessed and if it's given over to God in the right way. And so thin places are happening all around us all the time. Many people have said to me, you know, I just don't know if I have a thin place. Or I don't know if I even recognize what that is. And I've been saying, you know, some of the big ones are like when you're in a room with someone and they're passing away, you sense time is slowing down. But if you've ever gone to a concert with really beautiful music, I remember the first time I had heard Andre Bocelli singing in person after listening to his music for many years, and I felt really moved to tears. That's a thin place. It's where you can feel time moving differently in a sense of sacredness. So thresholds open us up to sacred space. Yeah, beautiful. I, as as you're describing it, it makes me think. Um, I don't know if you ever read Andrew Greeley's book, The Catholic Imagination, and his. Um, I, I think he has like just like the, in the introduction. He's he says something about how like the Catholic imagination sees the world dripping with grace. I don't know. Maybe that's my word. Or I don't know if it's his word or not. But but that's that's what I like kind of take from his thing. It's like everything's dripping with grace. It's it's the holy is lurking behind the corner. Um, and then to hear you describe it, it, it you know it almost is like there's like a. It's almost a disposition. Uh, are, are we available to be surprised by God in these thin places? Would you would you say in some ways that you know we can always avail ourselves to the thinness of, of reality if, if we're if we're mindful of God at work, or, or is it or is it only kind of a, a a moment you know particular moments that we experience? No, I think this is a great great way of looking at it. I think sometimes reading a book, listening to a podcast where you feel really connected, can be a thin place or a thin moment. And I think tapping into them, conversation flows more freely. You feel more at home with yourself and others. And I think if you're if you're aware of how God is moving in those moments, there is a recognition that this is this is a sacred time. So it doesn't have to feel huge or grandiose, but it can be these little moments. Like I was thinking last night, I was tucking my son into bed, and we had just prayed together, and he kissed my hand and he said, "You know, Mama, I love you." And I know, and I know Jesus loved his mama like this. 
just that oh, little wow. thin moment that we shared together where it was beautiful, it was special, it was a marked time. So thin moments are times where it's marked differently, where we feel more authentically human, more connected to each other, but also more connected to God. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful example. Um, I want to circle back one thing you, you're talking about, kind of conversations we're having with one another, mm-hmm. uh, just the kind of discourse in general. And you talk about this in your book, uh, you know, throughout. Um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, at the at the kitchen table, people might say, you know, oh, they're they're afraid to have deep conversations, and so it's more surface level. Um, and I think almost in some ways that surface level feels thin, uh, but but in fact, kind of the, the definitions are flipped. I, I, how and as I, again, as as I'm reading the book and listening to you talk now, it, you know, there's that, um, you know, for a thin thin space in a conversation allows us to really be immersed in the other person. How do you help people, kind of, in your own work now, or just in your own reflection? go in go deeper in those conversations so people can say what they need to say and and not miss a miss an opportunity yeah this this is something i think that we as a country we have to wrestle with which is our openness to dialogue with people who don't necessarily think live pray the same way that we do i think the world is enhanced the conversation is always richer and fuller when different perspectives can be brought to the table now there's something to be said for standing in your truth and i get that we use that expression a lot in the culture but I also think that the ability to listen um, with uh, ears that are more attuned to the ear of the heart, as the Benedictines would say, I think that's really important. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, a couple of years ago, I was working with a parish staff and they, they asked me to come in and they said, you know, we have a difficulty with um, one of our staff members just does not listen. So I had been meeting with the staff and, and this particular person who was a business manager said to me, but I'm an exceptional listener. Watch, come to our meeting and you'll see I'm an exceptional listener. And so I went to the staff meeting and, and the staff were saying some very, very difficult things about what they want to change. And, you know, not everything um, could be done, but there was a lot of validity to what they were saying. And I watched the businessman carefully, the business person carefully. And this person was nodding a lot and was very quiet. But nothing happened in between those meetings. And it led me down that path of wondering that the first step of listening, especially when it comes to prayer and how we listen with each other, isn't just being quiet. It's by being present and really tuning in. And the same is true of our relationship with God. Just because you're in a quiet space doesn't mean that your mind or your heart are silent. You can be sitting in church or in adoration or prayer, and your mind can be a million miles away. You can be making your grocery shopping list, for example. But that first step of listening is that attunement to the presence of the person in front of you. And I think that changes the tenor of the conversation greatly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's so well said. And I'm, I'm thinking about um, even, you know, St. Ignatius and, and, and kind of his instructions throughout the exercises. And, yes. Um, you know, and, and how uh, it, it's, you know, in the colloquy, it's, it's easy to talk at God. And it may be as easy to sit in silence, as you say, and make your grocery list or, or think about all the things you haven't done. But that dialogue with God isn't isn't had during grocery lists i mean maybe maybe in some cases um you know very holy things you're purchasing at the store but um um yeah no i I mean that's just that's just what what struck me um yeah you know that's so interesting because i was just reflecting on the life of saint ignatius this weekend actually and something that came up to me was you know that insight around finding god in all things you know think about that when it comes to difficult conversations how can we find god in in every person that we encounter that changes um, the listening tenor of the conversation from listening to respond to listening to understand. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. 
Um, I went to probably not a good segue after that comment. Now I'm going to change the change the uh, the topic slightly, but um, I want to I want to spend some time because obviously throughout your book you you are um, so grounded in your own um, Irish heritage, right? And and um, and you share all these these, these stories. And so I'm wondering, so I, I, I have a, a Syrian background, but a lot of that kind of came through food. You know, we, we made we made a lot of meals and, and people, oh, this is a good meal. But that was kind of where it, any any sort of insight I have into that side of my family is, is from those experiences. Where did you get your own, um, your understand, your depth of understanding and these stories and the spirituality? Um, you know, was it from grandparents? Was it from, you know, times around the table? Uh, give us a sense of, of that. Yeah, you know, our culture is carried in our food, in our practices and our traditions and beliefs. So I grew up in Ireland in a small village in the Wicklow Mountain area, quite rural, in fact. And I remember as a child, um, my parents taking us to the pub on a Sunday afternoon. Now, you have to understand, pub culture in Ireland isn't what it is in other parts of the world. We don't have a community center. We don't have a youth club. We don't have a coffee shop. We didn't even have a fast food restaurant growing up in our town. So the pub was where families gathered to have a meal, to have a cup of tea. Um, And I would love to sit by the fire when I was growing up and I would hear the elderly people like exchange these stories. And so you have singing and music and storytelling. Someone would bring in a fiddle and then somebody else would bring in a guitar. And all of a sudden there's a session happening. That's what we call like a session um, where people are exchanging life together. And I, I think every culture tells story in the way that's authentic to them. So my friend is like, oh my gosh, you grew up with all these stories. But I look at him and he tells story with his feet. So he's a Shanos dancer and he dances our culture. For me, I grew up with um, this idea of the Shanaki. So the Shanaki in Irish um, traditional culture is the bearer of old lore. That's what the word Shanaki means. And so I used to absorb a lot of these stories and in fact, uh, regurgitate them um, on stage, in fact, we had a competition uh, around recitation, and I love that. But I also think that we as Christians are bearers of old lore and that we tell stories. So uh, my traditions came from, you know, passing 4,000-year-old megalithic tombs on the way to, to school every day, sitting by the fire in the pub, you know, my grandmother telling me stories, and, and all of that became this kind of rich melting pot of belief, practices, and traditions, which I was very lucky to grow up with. I've only been to Ireland once, um, and I've only saw a very small amount of the country. But in my mind, maybe this is a terrible generalization, but in my mind, like as you said, you're driving past all of these ancient, beautiful, um, you know, history is right there in front of you. You know, you, you kind of see the stories leaping out um, of, of of past, you know, cultures and civilizations and people. Um, what, do you see that in our uh, kind of current like American context? What? How does that translate? Where do you see those stories? Um, what parallels can you draw? Yeah, I think it's a great question because each each of us um, are like a thread in a tapestry of this great experiment that we call America. And I think that's what attracted to me I, to this country was this great spirit of optimism and this melting pot of cultures and traditions. And so as I was working on braving the thin places, I had folks from other cultures who said to me, oh, my gosh, that's what we do. We bury our dead the same way. We spend, you know, a couple of days before we have a wake in a burial practice. And I think it's those traditions that connect us. And so, you know, typical traditions that we think are Irish aren't always necessarily Irish because we've, you know, we've taken them here in this country. We've made them um, fit for us, like corned beef and cabbage. It's, it's a simple one, but I can't tell you how many people ask me, 
did you grow up eating corned beef? I never had corned beef until I came to this country. So it's a simple one, um, but there are definitely parallels across all traditions too that I'm sure you can identify with. Yeah, no, of course. Well, t- talk a little bit. I think um, one of like, the famous, you know, as uh, you know, as Irish, you know, Irish and Catholicism kind of, you know, Saint Patrick is 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 this key figure. Um, and again, I'm, I'm no historian, but my sense is, is a lot of the legends that we have or, you know, that I learned in grade school are kind of the amalgamation of various characters um, into this legendary figure. But you, you did a nice treatment of, of St. Patrick in your book. So I wonder if you might disentangle some of the, the legend from the, um, the real person. And, and really, I think, like, what, what's the thing for us to take away from this individual today in 2022? Yeah, you know, I think he's such an important person for us. That I, I mean, we've, we've millions, almost 40 million Americans claim Irish ancestry. But St. Patrick is for everyone, you know, just like the great saint. Uh, you don't have to have Irish ancestry to dip into this well of knowledge around him. I wanted to share the places where St. Patrick was most identified with. Because if you go to Ireland, there are places where the villagers remember the founding of their town came through being baptized by St. Patrick. One of the places is Ballantubber Abbey on the west coast of Ireland. And when you go in to the town, it says, this is a place of prayer and peace. This town derives from those who were baptized by St. Patrick in 431, hmm. right? So you have this understanding of his presence in very, diff- you know, very difficult um, times in Irish life. So he kind of pops up everywhere through the famine, people were calling on his intercession. Let's talk about who St. Patrick really was. He was not Irish. So that's the first thing that often surprises people. He was Roman Britain. His family was wealthy. He was the son of a Roman official. Um, we do know that he was um, kidnapped and brought to Ireland. We, need, we know the name of the, the man who captured him. His name was Milku. And he tended pigs on what he called Slamish, which we believe is um, a mountain in the north of Ireland mostly around Antrim. Um, there are two sources of, of writings of St. Patrick's life, his letter of King Caraticus and his Confessio. Both were written by his own hand. And from them, we can learn who St. Patrick was. And in this, I think there's a lot of resonance with St. Ignatius of Loyola. Hmm. So a couple of things really come to mind here. Because St. Patrick was himself enslaved, he spoke out very vehemently against um, um, a king, King Caradicus, who wanted to enslave the Irish because he had known what this was like. So this might have been one of the first saints in recorded history to speak out against slavery, coming from the context of his own life. Second thing that we learn about him is he had a great devotion uh, to the scriptures. He regards himself as a rustic, unlearned man who wasn't formally educated because he was on the mountain tending pigs and he was sent overseas to train for priesthood. St. Ignatius also said the same thing. He lamented his formal lack of learning until later in life when he went for learning. St. Patrick talks a lot about the mercy of God and how he was like a a stone in a bog that the Lord lifted up in his wisdom and placed on the the top of the wall. And when you read the the writings of St. Ignatius, that indwelling around mercy of God is, is huge for us when we look at the spiritual exercises. And I think the last one that we see also is this beautiful awareness of God's presence um, as a blessing to us, as sacred space and time that God has is moving all around us. Like St. Ignatius says, we find God in all things and we give praise to God, who is the author of all life. 
St. Patrick would have found resonance with that very much. Do you find um, what parts of of St. Patrick's story most resonate with people um, as you as you share? Because I know you, I know you travel and you talk about uh, Celtic spirituality and, and St. Patrick and and your own stories. Um, what what lands most with people? What do they What do they chew on? So can I tell you one of my favorite stories yeah, about his life? And it's not one that you hear a lot. So that's why I wanted to kind of share it a little bit today. But there's a mountain that's very much associated with St. Patrick. It's called Crow Patrick. And um, it's nicknamed Ireland's holiest mountain on July 22nd. Thousands of people descend on this mountain in pilgrimage. But we're told that St. Patrick spent 40 days and 40 nights on this mountain in order to make um, preparations for his public ministry. And it's a great story. As he's going up the mountain, he carries two things with him. His um, shepherd's staff, you know, he was a bishop, um, but he also used it as a walking stick. And then his bell, or his cligging, as we say in Ireland. And his bell, he would ring. It was his prayer bell, which would call people from the villages to pray with him. That would announce his his um, arrival. But as Patrick was going up the mountain, we're told that a, a, a cloud of blackbirds descended on him and started to peck at him. And he was cold and he was tired and he was miserable. And he kept ringing his cligging and his bell and they would just disperse. And eventually he rang his prayer bell so loud and so hard that they left and were dispersed into uh, a place called the, the Hollow of the Demon, Logan and Yower. So this should give you a little clue where this is going. And as Patrick got to the very, very top of Crow Patrick, the mountain, it's a steep climb, I've climbed it myself. He had an overwhelming sense of ex uh, exaltation. I've, I've made it, I got to the top of the mountain, I've spent my 40 days and nights here, I'm ready for my mission. And just then, we are told that the Quaternach, which is um, an Irish word for a serpent, slithered by Patrick. And of course, this is Ireland, so everything talks. And so the snake <laughs> does too. And Patrick said, identify yourself. This is quite a creepy concept. And the, the, he said, who are you? And the Quaternach said, I am the mother of the devil. Oh my. Ooh, right? And so he had exhausted his prayer bell, so he took his stick. And he took a lash, as the Irish say. He whacked the serpent and he banished the snake off into um, Loch Curipaste or the Lake of the Red Serpent. What is the meaning behind this? It's a beautiful one. And I promise you, it's relevant. Anytime you're climbing a mountain and you're setting out to do something beautiful for God, something difficult, something hard, the blackbirds represent demons. Sometimes the demons come from within in the form of our own doubts who are you to be doing this why are you preaching the gospel um who are you to be whatever it is sometimes those doubts come from other people right and the only way that you can get rid of them according to saint patrick is by keeping your heart and your mind focused on prayer and just when you think i am ready god it's great i've gotten all of that behind me then the greatest attack of all will come because the mother of the devil is pride and you can never truly kill pride. Patrick was never able to kill the Quaternach. He had to work on attacking his own pride every day in order to let God be God and Patrick be Patrick. So it's my favorite story of St. Patrick. That's a great story. Very visual. I feel like I'm in like Narnia or Lord of the Rings. <laughs> this is like super cool. Um, and I think it has a lot of, uh, a lot, I mean, I mean, beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And a, a lot of resonance with um, Ignatian spirituality, right? And the two yes. standards and, um, you know, pride being, you know, one of the standards of, of, of the enemy and, um, um, and, and kind of that, like, you know, as you're 
as as the the discerner is moving you know in a certain direction you know how how uh the enemy works and you know whispers things and yeah wow great story. that's a good one i often tell people pride or your ego ego stands for edging god out and we yeah. do that all the time so yeah. it's a great story for being mindful of your ego and your pride yeah yeah no I, beautiful thank you um uh so I want to, I, I feel like we should end there. That's just a great story, but I have more questions. I'm sorry. Um, okay. I want to, <laughs> so, you know, in your book, you talk about, I'm putting quotes, air quotes, so people can't see, but the thing um, and how so many of us try to stuff our own darn things, again, air quotes, away and, and you, different things like grief and anxiety and pain and all these fears yeah. um, into these metaphoric junk drawers, right? I think you have a whole chapter called junk drawers. I do. Um, so how do you talk to people about um, you know, how they process these kinds of things? Um, and, and what does Celtic spirituality have to say about it? That's a great question. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed, particularly in this postmodern world that we're living in, is the concept of sin is very difficult for people to understand, particularly those who are in an early stage of their development of faith. And consequences and sin don't always come together in the same way. And so when you talk to mature disciples, for example, repentance becomes much easier to talk about. But I've noticed that um, when I talk about this concept, it, it definitely helps people frame what they're doing with their pain, their suffering, um, the, the, the shame that they carry. And I often say to people, we, we all have a junk drawer in our hearts where we stuff in all the things that we don't know what to do with. So maybe it was the cruel word that you heard from someone when you're in fourth grade or the mistake that you made or the relationship that you failed. You know, all of those things we kind of put in this space in our heart and we can give them over to God, but we never feel like we sort through them. And eventually we just stuff so much into this junk drawer that we can't get any more in there. And so I talk to people a lot about opening that junk drawer and really allowing God um, the opportunity to really help you sort through that. And I, I think one of the, somebody said to me, but I can't do that. This is so hard. I say, there's a great 10 line prayer. I can't, but you can. Jesus, show me the way. So it's again, that surrender and that leaning in. So I use that metaphor to, to really talk about some practices around repentance and sin and failing and weakness and kind of mediating that for people in a way that they can understand so that they can take out some of the patterns in their life that are holding them back and recognize what they're doing with them. And we all have a thing. And for me, um, I think that thing for me was just shoving with busyness all the things that have happened when my mother passed away and uh, allowing the light to really... Um, infuse into that drawer and to say, God, what were you doing in those moments? And having the courage to face who I was at that time and find peace in that moment. And so that junk drawer, I'll tell you something that was funny as I was speaking at a women's conference recently, someone said, and we have in our junk drawers, the potato masher. And I was like, what are you doing? And she goes, we all keep those in our drawers. And then one day we can't open our drawers because the potato masher pops up. And I said, yes. And each one of us has something we're holding on to, like that potato masher that prevents us from moving forward in our walk with God. Now, it's a, it's a it's a very, you know, banal example, but it's a great metaphor for people. And, you know, I use these shanuckles to guide people. That's the wise word to kind of help people develop some opportunities and awareness around what they're holding on to and bring some 
some practices from my tradition and some prayers into the conversation so that they feel like they can mediate them in a way that's helpful. Yeah, I um I have the potato masher in my like the little thing on the top of the counter. That's how often I use it. So you are it's, smart. Not, it's, it's not in the drawer. Yeah, and it's also a weird shape as you alluded to. But um but I I'm I'm curious again as uh, as we kind of think about Celtic spirituality mm-hmm. and and Celtic spirituality kind of um with kind of, you know, traditional Catholic spirituality. Um, like, wh- what does that l- that extra layer do for you as you work through things like grief and fear and um and and sh- you know all sorts of the complexities of life? Wh- what's that? What what is how might people kind of go about pra- practicing quote unquote uh, like the Celtic spiritual piece of Catholicism? Well, and this is something that I feel really strongly about um, what you're talking about here, Eric, which is that we unfortunately a lot of um our practices as catholics particularly in the early christian church we've lost the memory of those and some of them have become eroded and i was concerned that some elements of celtic wisdom beliefs and practices were being co-opted by other you know avenues of thought ideologies things like that you know at its core celtic christianity is the unique form of christianity that developed in certain countries in europe and so there were two mass you know, migration waves of the Celts. Um, and as we look at that in terms of the Celtic nations, if you will, in air quotes, you know, you look at Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Nova Scotia, Brittany, Cornwall, Devon, and the Isle of Man, they still retain a lot of those practices. Um, some of those practices around death, dying, birthing, we are losing our own ability to tell our story. So I want to give you a, an example of that. Um, There's a beautiful Celtic practice that when somebody is passing away, that you just leave the window open a crack in their bedroom so that, um, and it's a lovely understanding of the communion of saints, so that the spirits of our ancestors can kind of come in and leave gently and that the soul has a free passage when the soul is ready to make its home to eternal life. So that's one. Another one that surprises a lot of people, when somebody passes away, Traditionally in Ireland, all the clocks in the home are stopped. Somebody literally goes by and stops time because for that family that's lost a loved one, time has literally been marked differently. Again, it's a thin moment where our lives are now marked by this loss and this grief. And so I wanted to be able to name those practices, reclaim those practices, and kind of bring them back to the forefront in a way that is is in harmony with our Catholic tradition and not opposed to it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I hear even with the, the cracked window, I can, I can get a sense of that threshold again, you know, yeah. we, how are we allowing God in? And I, again, I think it's, I mean, as, as you alluded to, it's so, um, uh, it just, it just fits so well in our understanding, I think, as a, kind of the Catholic perspective on the world, because, you know, like, you know, the sacramentality of, of our lives, right? That, you know, we do things, we, we do rituals, we yeah. uh, touch stuff, you know, we're, we're, um, I love the clock image too, like, you know, the, the, the practice of, of doing stuff is so important in, in all that we are as people of faith, I, I think. Um, speaking of doing stuff, this is the last question, and I'm, I'm curious as a spiritual writer, what um, what did the practice of, of writing, this uh, uh, putting this down, um, do for you in your own uh, you know, processing of your grief, but also um, just in your own, uh, you know, thinking about uh, again, how to how to put your your heritage down in, on paper and, and then share it with other people. What's that? What's that process like? And what did you hope? What do you hope it you know comes from it? Yeah, you know, I had worked on this book for twenty years, so it's the the fruit of twenty years of insights um, in moving from Ireland to the U.S. and noticing how 
we um, looked at life a little differently and being able to synchronize those pieces. So I became a U.S. citizen a couple of years ago, actually, which is a very moving process. And talk about a threshold experience. Yeah. You know, as a marker for that um, was incredible. Um, I, I wanted people to understand. I was tired of a lot of the books that were coming out around spirituality. I call them the glory story books. Like I once was lost and then I found Jesus and my life was, uh, you know, magically better. And for some people, that might be true of their story. But in my work, especially with young adults and young people, I was hearing a lot of, show me what it feels like to, to live in the broken places where God is knitting us back together. And so, you know, a beautiful image for me when I was praying about this is the image of the Eucharist. You know, this is my body given for you. This is my body broken for you. And I think about at Mass then seeing you know, the, the Eucharist as, as completely broken open for the people. And I thought about that as a thin place for us in that we break open our own stories to reach other people. We break open, you know, how God is moving in our lives so that someone else may see themselves in our story. And we break open these um, moments of encounter where people say, I don't understand what it means to have a relationship with God. How do you see him? How is he moving in your life? And I think there's, there's, there's something that's very real and authentic about sharing those places, um, because we all have places and spaces of pain and transformation, but also of incredible joy. And I think to help see people that their life is a tapestry of those experiences and that we're not defined by the moment, that can be incredibly freeing and beautiful. Like I was just at a women's day, as I said, and a, a man's day of reflection, gentleman's day of reflection, as they called it. And I, I share this. And there's a lot of freedom in saying, my goodness, our Catholic faith can hold all of this. Um, because Jesus Christ held it all himself too. He held all that pain and suffering for us. And so I think modeling that for people is, is important. Beautiful. Well, Julian, the, the book is called Braving the Thin Places. I'll put a link in the uh, in the notes, the show notes here. Um, but thank you so much for being on uh, AMDG today. You're welcome. Thanks. And I would say Slamagaspana, which means goodbye and God bless. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. and occasionally in my basement. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. And our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference Communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocations promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>